Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The idea that natives are not actually here is sort of an insistence in our national storytelling on our disappearance. That idea undergirded the exploitation and settlement of this entire continent. That was a story that people told even way back when, as people were manifesting their destiny to justify the theft of land. Because it's not really theft if no one is here to own it. History makes a lot of noise in the United States. In this moment, the noise seems louder than ever. GOP activists are packing into school board meetings demanding school curricula be wiped of historical truth on race. GOP legislators are passing laws like the recent one in Texas. Texas Republicans wanted to be sure teachers aren't telling your kids that white people are inherently racist. So this last session, they made a list of concepts public schoolers should and should not learn. Requirements were dropped for students to read Martin Luther King Jr., United Farm Workers leader Cesar Chavez, and suffragist Susan B. Anthony. And for good measure, the Texas Senate dropped requirements to teach the Ku Klux Klan as morally wrong. Behind all the loud arguments about history is something more insidious. The menacing silence from history. The present silence echoing history. What's there, but we can't see. What has been erased in plain view. I'm Ibram X. Kendi, and this is Be Anti-Racist. I did not grasp the menace of silence when I went to school as a child in Jamaica, Queens. 
I could see Black neighbors, Latinx neighbors, Asian neighbors, and a handful of white neighbors, but I could not see Native neighbors, though they were there. What I saw was a fabricated mirage, racist portrayals of uncivilized so-called savages on TV and in films, caricatures of Native men grinning as mascots for sports teams. When Native Americans were mentioned in stories of the past, we were served the trope of the vanishing Indian, a sad but semi-romantic story of manifest destiny gone too far in doing away with a once noble people. I wasn't alone being fed the vanishing Indian myth. A 2018 survey found that 40% of Americans believe that Native Americans no longer exist. 40%. But when will Americans replace the vanishing Indian myth for the truth of vanishing history? Or is it better to say banishing history? The banishing of the relationship between settler colonialism, frontier wars, state-sanctioned genocides, Indian removal, and the spread of the enslavement of indigenous and African peoples. The banishing of the inextricable link between anti-Native racism and anti-Black racism. The vanishing Indian trope was as misleading as the trope of the happy slave. The Indian remained, and the enslaved remained angry. Both resisted robbers of their land and labor and lives, neither in silence. But the silenced were never silenced, just muted. I've been learning to hear the loudness of Native history, their cultures, their stories, their lives, their ideas. Let's listen today. Welcome to Be Anti-Racist, an action podcast where we discuss how to diagnose, dismantle, and abolish racism, how to save humanity from the divisiveness of racist ideas and the destructiveness of racist power and policy, how to free humanity through the unity of anti-racist ideas and the constructiveness of anti-racist power and policy. On Be Anti-Racist, we discuss how to make the impossible possible and how to bring into being what modern humans have never known, a just and equitable world. You ready? Let's roll. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity 
giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The number one story, the dominant narrative about American Indian people is that we were once great and we are great no more. And if there's a history written about us, history is only that which we have endured and maybe somehow survived. And nowhere in those accounts does it suggest that we are actors in our own lives. David Troyer is an Ojibwe Indian from Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota. His most recent book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the present, was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Carnegie Medal in 2019. He is currently a professor of English at the University of Southern California. Troyer has written powerfully about the ramifications of historical erasure and anti-Native racism. We sat down to talk about his call for the U.S. government to return the national parks to the tribes. David, I've been looking forward to today for quite some time. I have learned and grown and been inspired by your work. You're one of those writers who, when you publish, I read. Oh, thank you. Recently, Rick Santorum, who's a former U.S. senator and CNN political contributor, talked about how European colonists and settlers birthed a nation from nothing. We came here and created a blank slate. We, we birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there was nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but, in, but candidly, that, that, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. When you heard those comments, I mean, what was your first reaction? <laughs> you know, the kindest thing I can say is that statement is radically uninformed. It's not that different from the most commonly held belief about Native people. Mm. Our social utility in this country is to have been here, but to have died off. The facts of history are quite different from the sentiments that Santorum is expressing in that comment. As someone who was a senator, who should know something about the growth of the American Republic and its institutions, he of all people should know that, for example, the first act of the American revolutionaries was to dress up like Mohawk Indians and dump tea in Boston Harbor. Hmm. He should know that the American Revolution was in many ways about who got to capitalize off of exploiting Indian lands, the British crown or the colonists, 
that was one of the main reasons for going to war. He should also know, as a former representative, you know, that the legislature in which he served was in part modeled after the separation of powers in the Iroquois Confederacy. It's to the Iroquois Confederacy that the young republic looked for its political organization. So to say that there's no Native American culture in American culture is just one of the most destructive but widespread fantasies that Americans in general have. When I think of anti-Black racist ideas, there's so many different tropes, but I would probably say that the idea of Black people is dangerous. It's probably the worst of all. Is this idea of nothingness that Rick Santorum expressed that so many Americans believe, would you consider that the most dangerous, the worst? Or how would you contextualize that specific idea within the larger gamut of anti-nativeness? It's tough. Do I have to choose? the most damaging? If I did have to choose, I'd say, yeah, that probably is. The idea that natives are not actually here is sort of an insistence in our national storytelling on our disappearance. That idea undergirded the exploitation and settlement of this entire continent. That was a story that people told even way back when, as people were manifesting their destiny to justify the theft of land. Because it's not really theft if no one is here to own it. Mm. And that has proven to be a durable myth. Absolutely. People who listen to this podcast may not be looking at me, but I'm pretty uh, white passing. Mm -hmm. I'm not recognizably visibly native. My father's Jewish, dark, complected, black hair. My mother is native, dark, black hair. And then the four of us kids that they had my older brother looks like a Hollywood native guy, very handsome, dark skin, black hair. There's me. I look more like Jason Statham, for those of you who can't see me right now. So like an action figure. Just kidding. I don't. But my younger brother is sort of somewhere in between. And my sister's got blonde hair and blue eyes. So growing up as we did on the Leech Lake Reservation and then moving out into the world, that idea of native disappearance was something that we all experienced in different ways. My brother went away to college in New Jersey at Princeton. And uh, people say, well, what are you? Where are you from? He told them where he was from and he told them what he was. And he had people say to his face, well, that can't be true. Mm. And he said, what do you mean? That can't be native? They said, no, we killed all of you. He said, I think you missed one and maybe more than one. And then I followed him there. David Troyer, I'm native from the Leech Lake Reservation. And they said, well, you can't be native. I said, why? They said, well, look at you. But the fact is that you have never once met a native person. So who are you? to categorize what I do and do not look like. You know, so that invisibility myth functions in a lot of different ways. And it's pernicious. As of the last census, over 5 million people identified as native or part native on the census. That means there are more native people in this country, not that you would know it, than there are people who identify as Jewish. Mm. And that there are twice as many Native American people in this country today, as there are people who identify as Muslim American. Not only are we not gone, but we are here in numbers beginning to approach the number of Native people who were here in 1491 before Columbus showed up. We have been reborn. What do you think the nation 
fears collectively will happen if they give up that myth of invisibility, of nothingness, of this virgin American soil before the arrival of European colonists. I think that if America collectively gave up that myth and that story, they would be forced to contemplate themselves in ways that are deeply unflattering. America is not good at performing that kind of inward look. It has never managed to let go both of our invisibility and the myth of its own innocence in order to properly interrogate this country's actions since its founding. The story of Indian removal and the drive in Washington and in the South to make this happen is usually told as an attempt to get gold. But Andrew Jackson was a real estate speculator, as were his friends. And when you're looking at real estate in the South in the 1820s and 30s, you're not looking for gold. You're looking for land to expand the institution of slavery. Indian removal was all about expanding slavery. To recognize that, to uninvisible us, would mean that this country has to confront its behaviors that drift pretty far from its stated ideals, liberty, justice, pursuit of happiness, of fair play. People don't want to see that. No, they don't. And to complicate the myth of native invisibility even more, it seems to me that there's almost two branches to that myth. And I'm going to sort of articulate both branches based on barbaric things that have been said about Native people. So, <laughs> Fair you know, of course, Native folks, like Black folks, have been called barbaric and savages, when in reality, the ideas themselves were barbaric. One is this idea that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And the other is, let's kill the Indian and save the man. And so with the first, it's the literal destruction of the body in the invisibility of the body and the forced violent attempt to eliminate the body. And then with the second is the violent forced destruction of the culture, of the identity. I want to emphasize these two because I think there are some Americans who will recognize genocide of bodies as a problem, as violent as a crime against Native people, but they may not recognize attacks of Native cultures and ways of life and being in the world as violent. Do you see that in your work? One of the ways that they tried to destroy Native nations was to break up tribes by breaking up families. And there was nearly compulsory attendance of Native kids at government and religiously run boarding schools. The whole point of them was, in the words of the founder of the first one in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Colonel Pratt, to kill the Indian to save the man. And this was accomplished by beatings, near starvation, being punished for speaking one's native language and practicing one's native religion, by being not allowed to return home to visit family. I think it's telling that these boarding schools, almost all of them, had attached to them not just schoolrooms and classrooms and dormitories. They all had cemeteries. Hmm. 
Boarding school was in many ways where you went to die, not just as an Indian, but also as a person. There was another assault on Native nations, on Native polity, and that was by trying to mainstream us. The idea in the late 19th century was that Native people, to the extent that we still existed, were suffering because we couldn't get with the civilization program, the primary component of which was the private ownership of land. Hmm. So Senator Dawes promoted and wrote legislation called the General Allotment Act or the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act, passed in the late 1880s, attempted to sever communal ownership of tribal lands and to assign individual parcels to individual Native people as a way to civilize us. That's the rhetoric. But really, in fact, what that ended up doing because our populations had suffered so much, because there had been so much violence visited on our bodies, that individual parcels were assigned to heads of household and the quote-unquote surplus land was open to settlement. So the passage of the Dawes Act alone in the late 1880s bled over 90 million acres away from Native peoples. Wow. At the same time, and as the result of legislation of the same senator, the national parks were born. Roughly 87 million acres of wildlands were put into national parks and monuments. Bonjour, David Troyer, Nindishnikas, Gabob and Don, and podcast Ishnikadig. Be anti racist, Ishnikadig. Minua Dash, Ibram X. Kendi. I want to share with you one of my takeaways, particularly for your recent essay in The Atlantic, in which you argue for the returning of the national parks to the tribes. Mm. And I want you to tell me whether it's wrong, (laughs) what needs (laughs) to be complicated about it. And so my general takeaway from the piece was you tried, (laughs) but you couldn't take away our bodies. Mm. You tried, but you failed to take away our tribes, our cultures. But you did take a tremendous amount of land. <laughs> right. And it was a tremendous amount of theft. And thereby, the only way to remedy that theft of land is with land. Yeah, that takeaway is spot on. My proposal in the Atlantic is something that should probably be done for Native people. It's also something that should be done for American people. Hmm. My impression, I got to call it my impression, because honestly, I don't really speak for anybody other than myself. I'm not an elected tribal leader. I'm not a hereditary leader of anything. I'm just a guy who writes things and causes trouble. That's (laughs) that's what I do. I know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? But my feeling is that my tribe, the Ojibwe, other tribes, Blackfeet, Tongva, Diné, Pueblo, Lakota, you name it. Most of us understand ourselves as being who we are because of where we are. Mm -hmm. That's at the sort of foundation of our tribal understandings, which are cultural and political. Everything that makes me an Ojibwe person is about geography. It's about homeland. You couldn't practice the remotest part of our culture really someplace else. There's no place else, for instance, where wild rice grows where the things we harvest that feed us grow, in my case. So the theft of land was aimed at destroying us as a nation. 
and feeding the growth of the American nation. The only way that that can be even partially undone is by the return of land. There's also that misconception that the national parks were sort of pristine and untouched, and they were the most virgin of all American virgin land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The national parks were talked about and sort of conceived of as these natural cathedrals. And people don't live in cathedrals, right? (laughs) They just worship there. The American habit in America's relationship with land has always been one of both taming on one hand and revering on the other. And frankly, that's exactly how people kind of think about natives, right? Mm. Disappearing us on one hand and appreciating our innate qualities as people imagine them. And we've kind of treated American land in a similar fashion. There's land that is to be exploited, tamed, done in. And then the parks are this land that is empty, primal, never touched. But the fact is, everything that Europeans, and then subsequently non-Europeans who've come here, everything that they saw had already been shaped by Native people for millennia. Those beautiful, old-growth, shady forests on the eastern seaboard looked that way because of controlled burns by tribes there who designed them to look that way. Buffalo, New York is called Buffalo, New York because Native tribes had burned forests to increase grasslands and rangelands as far east as Buffalo to encourage bison to live there because they're a great food source. Yosemite Valley itself had been tended and cultivated for centuries for acorn crops, for example, which is a primary food source of many California tribes. So there's nothing untouched about this landscape, nothing quote unquote virgin about it. This landscape had been something that we had lived with, modulated, changed, shaped before anyone else got here and have continued to do so ever since. The most galling thing, of course, is that they created these national parks as places outside of time, as places outside of the reach of humans. In order to facilitate that fantasy, they oftentimes forcibly removed or excluded native tribes for whom those particular parks were homelands. That happened at Yellowstone, happened at Glacier, happened at the Grand Canyon, among other places. So yeah, it's a problem deeply embedded. So to return them would be something grand. Justice is not just a recognition that a crime has been committed, but there's also accountability, awareness of the scale of the crime. But then there's also restitution. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I was so blown away by your anti-racist proposal to return the national parks to the tribes is because you rightly framed the national parks as the most hollowed American ground. There's many different lands that could be returned, but to convey the most precious of all American lands, to return what you write are sometimes called America's best idea. I think that speaks, at least for me as a non-Native person, that is the level of restitution that non-Native people that non-Native Americans, that's how big we need to be thinking. That's how it seems to me. But, and this is, you know, the anti-racist bit, America needs this to happen, not just for our sake, 
But for its sake, I think it's important for this country to remember and to become acquainted with the idea that this country can still perform justice. It needs to become a habit. I really feel like this country is suffering in myriad ways because of its insistence on its own innocence, its reluctance to look at what it's done and what it is still doing, not just vis-a-vis Native people by any stretch of the imagination. It's suffering a crisis that justice and the habit of justice could restore. So it needs to give those parks back. I could not agree more. And so why now? Why make such a bold and critical and precise proposal like returning the national parks to the tribes? I think now, more so than at probably any other time, it's a time of reconsideration. There is, if not a process, and if not a place, there is certainly an impulse, at least, to take stock. It's a bolder idea to take away Native lands and then mismanage them. That's a bold idea. What's bold is leaving the parks at the mercy of people like Donald Trump. President Obama had enlarged, for example, Bears Ears National Monument and added further protections to it. Two or three weeks after taking office, Donald Trump undid all of that and reduced Bears Ears National Monument by 80%. And he did this. Why? Because he was mad at the Park Service for reporting the real numbers of his inaugural festivities, which of course occurred on the National Mall, which is a national monument and was monitored and assessed by the National Park Service. They reported the real numbers of the people who were and were not there. Trump was very mad. So he destroys the protections that Obama extended to Bears Ears. It's bold to keep our parks in such a vulnerable state, Mm. vulnerable to the whims of this or that administration. That's a bold idea. My idea, not so bold. Returning the parks to a consortium of tribes to manage on behalf of and for the benefit of all Americans, that doesn't feel that bold at all because we're actually good at this practical. That's what I would call my idea. Oh, I would agree. And I think we're living in a time in which the idea of returning the best of American land to the tribes scares people because they're like, what's going to happen to the land? As opposed to, I think what you're saying is, what's going to happen to the land if we don't return it to the tribes? (laughs) Right? I could be biased, but I don't think so. I think the last 500 years have shown us that Native tribes are better at taking care of land Mm. than white colonial settlers. Whose hands do you want to put it in? Ours or theirs? I had put my money on us. I mean, my money's on you too. As you write about, Native people have been tending the land for more than 15,000 years. Did I get that? (laughs) Recent archaeological surveys suggest it's been much longer than that. Much longer. For people who are inspired, for people who see very clearly how the returning of the national parks to the tribes could be a form of restorative justice, how would you suggest they contribute to what I suspect will very soon become a struggle to make this idea a reality? 
Yeah, well, they can vote with their feet. <laughs> they can vote with their ballots. Those people lucky enough to not have their vote suppressed. Mm. And they can take individual action. You might remember with greater clarity than I do who said it, but the sentiment is that racism deforms the racist yeah. as much as the people upon whom that racism is placed. The same is true for theft. Mm. And so it's good to give back, not just the people receiving the gift, but to those giving it. On an individual level, after that article was published, I had a guy from North Carolina reach out to me and he said, I have, I can't remember now, 40, 50 acres in North Carolina, and I would like to find a way to give it back to the native people, the tribes in North Carolina. How do I do that? And I said, that is wonderful. Mm. I put some calls out on the socials, native Twitter, <laughs> native Facebook are vibrant. Shout out to native Twitter and native Facebook. <laughs> right. And that makes me feel really good. It's a tiny, tiny parcel, relatively speaking, right? 40 acres. But that's something. And it's profound. Yeah, that is something. There were slaveholders who came across abolitionist literature who came to recognize the theft of labor, mm. the theft of the bodies that they were partaking in. And so they decided as individuals to do the unthinkable and free people. Mm. I see this direct connection between the manumenting of enslaved people and the returning of land to Native people. And I think we as a nation, we applaud those slaveholders who were able to do that. <laughs> but we can't make the connection right now in this moment that there are people who can do something similar, or we as a nation can do something similar by returning the national parks to the tribes. And I just hope that everyone really thinks deeply about what they personally can do. And as you stated, how restorative justice and this type of restorative justice is not just for Native people, it's for people, it's for humanity. Back in the days of intertribal warfare, when my tribe was fighting our neighbors, when a death was considered murder, there were a couple choices open to you. And they follow kind of a cultural script. The bereaved family who lost somebody to violence, could either put the deceased person's spirit through a ceremony to give them rest and to see them on. But there was another path too. You could ritually and in effect adopt a member, usually of the same sex and same age as the person you lost, to replace them spiritually as a member of the community. And there was a third option. And the third option was called the laying of gifts. Mm -hmm. If you killed somebody and you were terribly sorry, you would literally cover their body with gifts of incredible value to basically pay for that death. All three are different forms of restorative justice yeah. practiced by my tribe. And just as this country borrowed from the Iroquois Confederacy to shape their models of government, I invite this country to borrow our sense of what justice looks like and how to achieve it. That's a gift that I'm willing to give to this country. That would mean something. Think about what that kind of justice would look like. I'm happy you used that cultural reference point and spoke about it as a gift. 
Because I think even when we think about our own personal lives in a very micro sense, when we have wronged someone and when we personally reach out to that person to declare to them our recognition that we wronged them, then we take that next step to heal and repair. Certainly that is beneficial for that person, but I don't know if there's a better word to think about the way in which we ultimately feel that's better than a gift. Mm, Right. And that's a gift that communities of color, African-American communities, Native communities, those are gifts that we have been giving to this country since the beginning. Yeah. And despite being rejected and burned and gaslighted and so on, we keep giving it. Indeed. How can we begin to solve and repair and create this world anew? I think with your proposal to return the national parks to Native tribes, it gives the United States that ability to do that. And I think that's really incredibly important for us in this time. Well, David, it was just great to talk to you, to learn from you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this time and this conversation and your energies. It means a lot. Thank you so much. Shortly after my conversation with David Troyer, CNN fired their commentator Rick Santorum over his assertion that there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. Is the vanishing Indian now the vanishing Indian culture? To mute history is to mute culture. On the other hand, to return the national parks to the tribes is to begin to vocalize Native American history and culture and rights. The national parks have been called America's best idea. They were created simultaneously with Native reservations. At the time, Oglala Lakota spiritual leader Black Elk noted that the United States made little islands for us and other little islands for the four-leggeds, and always these islands are becoming smaller. But Native people remain, and as Troyer wrote, some of us have stayed stubbornly near the parks, preserving our attachment to them. It is time for the U.S. government to preserve their attachment to them. Let us return the national parks to America's original people. Let us begin repairing America's racist past with an anti-racist present. Let us be anti-racist. Be Anti-Racist is a production of Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. It is written and hosted by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and produced by Alexandra Garrison with associate producer Brittany Brown. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, our editor is Julia Barton, and our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Lital Molad and Mia Lobel. Many thanks to Tammy Wynn and Dr. Heather Sanford at the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University for all of their help. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find Dr. Kendi on Twitter at Dr. Ibram and on Instagram at IbramXK. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at Pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin Podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.
Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.